Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. For this week's episode, uh, we're going to make it light, light and easy. It's just Sheila and me, because the two of us have not been together this year so far. <laughs> it has been a very busy year, but for whatever reason, because of movement and travel and everything else, we've only had a couple of episodes together. And I think just because of, like again, a lot of activity going on, particularly in the regulatory space, it just felt like, okay, let's you and I just step back, uh, take stock of where we're at, and maybe... Just see where the conversation goes. Uh, so anyway, what do we start with about that? You actually yourself had to testify in right, uh, yeah. Sacramento recently. Tell us a little bit about that. what's happened there. This is the Californian uh, legislation that's up Yeah. For, well, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but given the complexity of the U.S. Congress right now, I think, again, just seeing what happened with the speaker vote uh, and the fact that we have a Republican House and we have a Democratic Senate, uh, you know, it's it's a bit of an interesting time at the, at the federal level in the legislature. And a lot of activity is happening in the states. We all saw that coming. Well, those of us who you know are in this uh, saw that coming. But the flurry of activity is a bit surprising. So Illinois, New Jersey, New Hampshire, a bunch of states, you know, throwing their hats in the ring. Uh, and California, of course, remains a, a major power player. Uh, fifth largest economy in the entire world, no ethnic majority, you know, and sets the tone for a lot of of uh, the conversation around this stuff. So last year, by way of a little history lesson, there was a bill that was passed almost unanimously through uh, the Senate and Assembly, the California legislature it was vetoed by Governor Newsom. And a new version of that is almost certain, I would say it's certain to pass uh, this time around and this next session. And the question becomes, what is that going to say? What is the bill going to say? And uh-huh. so this particular hearing wasn't about bill text. It was more about framing crypto. And I think the title of it was like, it was a very negative title, right? And so the frame on the conversation was, what the heck is the point of crypto? Why does it have any value whatsoever? And the questions that were asked of me were very much like people being, I mean, they were being 
somewhat polite about it, depending on who was asking, but very mm-hmm. much like, what's the point of this? Why does anyone care about this? Why are we even here today? What so the hell, it was like a right? microcosm of the way that the whole world is asking a lot of these questions right Correct. now. Obviously Correct. in ignorance, but yes, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so it was interesting. It was not to believe this touch. It was two panels. So one, the first panel was uh, DFPI, which is California's state, you know, regu- relevant regulator uh, that would be tasked with rolling out what a regulatory regime looks like in this space. Similar to the bit license in New York, the idea is well, there's something similar here that would be run by DFPI. And, uh, and it was some law firm partner. And the second panel was me and uh, someone who I did, the president executive director of the California Consumer Alliance or Consumer Federation, who came out swinging. I mean, this guy had rolled out you know, stories of people, legitimate stories, honest stories that were told about people who had been rugged or who had been scammed uh, in the crypto environment. And then his entire premise was basically, you know, uh, crypto is a gigantic scam, a waste of time. Essentially. And, yeah. And so it became this really interesting and I'm going to call it a debate. It was very respectful for the most part, for the most part respectful. And the questions that were being asked were not crazy. I know I got the tulip bubble question. I got the, you know, who even cares about this question? I, I do think that it was reflective of the tenor around, you know, what we all spend all of our time doing all day. It was just very interesting because it had been a little while since people had been that black and white about it, right? Most yeah. people, I think, well, I'll yeah. say PFTX, right? Or we're very like, Clearly, something here is interesting and important. We don't really get it, right. but, you know, benefit the doubt. And now a lot of that has, uh, well, we have the case to make yet again. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's the stuff we always talk about. It's like it's it's the focus on the wrongdoing of a crowd of people that have gathered around a technology and used its current state of development, its current state of regulatory framework, its its current state, I suppose, of speculative fervor to abuse people like it's like it's a yeah, right absolutely. wild west environment so the, all, all of the focus goes on all of that that's what crypto is to them this madness and it's understandable that that's the perception because that's what makes the headlines but it's just so difficult to try it's like whoa wait 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 just think about yeah. the tech just think about like that and, and the application and the real world applications that i do think continue to grow but i agree with you it was you know it wasn't that long ago that yeah there was now this all right it's time to wake up and notice this but i suppose i'd say one thing and I, first of all i want to well, not first, but let's let's deal with this. But I'd like to get you to give me an idea what your answers were to all of this. But um, <laughs> yeah. I do think that the, in a very indirect way, the flurry of activity at the state level, and some of them may be coming on with very harsh overtones and are probably going to have some draconian measures attached to them. But there is a validation to this at the same time, right? Like it's like it's not. No one's calling for bans, and instead you've got these regimes that are emerging feeling like they have to do something because they have to do something because it exists, because it's here, because you can't avoid it, right? And so even even in the midst of the madness of FTX and all of the fallout and negativity that's come from that, there's still this, all right, (laughs) what are we going to do about it? We can't ban it. We're going to have to regulate it. And that, in a a way, is not ideal because it's probably piecemeal regulation because it's ad hoc and it's not well thought out necessarily. But there's a certain validation that comes to that, I suppose. I'm trying to put a bit yeah, of a, no, I, a, I agree a, a, a I agree silver lining on this cloud. I, I agree with you. I mean, I, th- I think we are beyond the time when any credible person is talking about bans, right? I and mean, that's just, yeah. it's just making people understand that's not a thing. I do take some heart in that. I would call it a sort of resignation to the reality that crypto <laughs> is here to stay, right? Begrudging, begrudging acceptance, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. But there, there is a resignation, a, res- a resigned awareness of the stickiness, you know, of this, yeah. of this stuff, right? So 
I do think we've at least come to that. And, you know, I'm kind of, it's just very funny. I kind of think, what if, what if think about it, talked about this before. I don't think crypto's done itself any favors. Cause I mean, I'll tell you the stories that this, this person, my co-panelist was telling, they're truly heartbreaking stories. I mean, yeah. truly, truly horrible, awful, true. You know, I have no reason to believe they're not true, true stories. And I think the fact that there hasn't been a broader denouncing of this kind of behavior from, you know, a, a lot more people in the ecosystem is problematic. We don't do ourselves any favors by, A, trying to dismiss this stuff or pretend it's, you know, it's tiny minority and not coming out swinging against. It. And so, yeah. frankly, Michael, to answer your other question, that's kind of the stance that I took, right, is like this stuff is absolutely atrocious. It's horrible. These people are terrible people. They should be stopped, you know. Um, all of that, because I think it's, I think that's true. I have the, the merit of believing that very fervently. But I also think that for those stories, there are other stories of people who have found this to be the first time in their financial lives they felt empowered. And those mm. are also true stories, you know. And so I think kind of casting it to say, anytime there's an opportunity to make a lot of money seemingly very quickly, you're going to attract, as we've talked about, a bunch of sociopaths. You ju it's just what's going to happen, right? And I was yeah. laughing because after this hearing, we went to lunch at a place um, named after Sutter's Mill. And uh, Sutter's Mill, of yeah, course, no, right, I know Sutter's Mill, where, yeah. Yeah, where yeah. gold was found in California yeah. and the gold rush happened. And pretty sure that the the random gentlemen who, you know, came across the country in their covered wagons to find gold were not like the most savory characters, right? <laughs> this is a, kind of the way that it goes. Now, yeah. at some point that, d that diminishes and those people, you know, leave, either they make their money on the backs of others and they go away or they yeah. you know, leave or they find the next thing to be, you know, excited about and take their sociopathy too. But there's no question that money is a big draw. And anytime you've got the kind of potential that was observed in this space, certainly, you know, even a, a year and a half ago, you're going to attract those kinds of folks. But I, I think we don't do ourselves any favors by being as okay with that as we are perceived to be as an ecosystem. Yeah, there's a reason why the Wild West analogy is used a lot, right? And, it, and, yeah. it, and it, it's often used in a negative sense, but it can be used in a positive sense. It's like just to say, look, this is inevitable in this environment, Wild West come up. But did, you know, did California end up, you know, becoming That's right. this? That's right. This ongoing, <laughs> never resolved cesspool of bad behavior. I mean, some would I mean, argue yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. It's certainly, it's certainly, if, if it's bad, it, certainly it's bad behavior if it exists and it does in different ways, evolved in different ways. Let's just say that much, right? But, <laughs> yes. um, but I think that you made a really good point about the about the community not necessarily uh, giving enough acknowledgement to that, and this is, I think, part of the problem as well is that because of the sort of speculative nature and the I'm in this for my tokens kind of feeling that people breed around it, right? You and I have talked about this. I talked about this with uh, with Nehar, uh, Narula in, in recent episode as well. Like, how do we deal with the reality of speculation as this drive, as this sort of like yeah. inherently difficult thing to remove? It's actually kind of quite valuable. It does lubricate activity we do know that a lot of the development that's happened in this space some of the coolest inventions like zero knowledge proofs and things that was at least the advance of that technology that's happened in the crypto world has has been funded in large part by the amount of money that's coming in so there's a lot of good in that but i think the fact that people get personally invested in a particular token of any type or a particular experience and a particular exchange means it's all about me and what's in it for yeah, me and yeah. so I, th I feel like mm. you know when the backlash against FTX and, and Sam Bankman-Fried 
has been vitriolic anger from from the community. There's no absence of that. We all know how absolutely pissed off everybody in crypto is about this. But it's it's framed around this, give me my money back, you know, which is understandable. But it's like we haven't created room for these. There's a sense that people feel very upset about the the average, you know, like like Kevin Reynolds, uh, our editor in chief, was telling me about, you know, a dry cleaner in his neighborhood who lost two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to FTX, mm-hmm. right? A dry cleaner. I think the reaction people have is like, oh, that's bad because that's going to be negative for crypto and therefore negative for me. Rather than just know, think about the poor man or the poor woman who was think about the poor person, yeah. right? Like, what is the that acknowledgement, that capacity, the humanizing, the reality is of what this means. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't know why that's absent. And how do you get this amorphous mass of a community? You know, we can't tell yeah. them what to do. But like, you know, yeah. I'm just reminded when I did a bunch of press around, um, you know, layoff rounds and, and post Terra Luna, right? There was a bunch of just discussion around that. And I had so many reporters tell me that I was the only person who had taken a beat to express empathy for the victims of that. Yeah. which I just found wow. shocking. I found that shock. I found that really <sighs> disturbing, very yeah. deeply disturbing because I think in our obsession and focus, and, and, and look, I admire that drive. And I think to some extent, if you're somebody who's building a really complicated, hard thing, there is a laser focus that happens, but we can't lose our humanity around all of this. You know, I mean, yeah. it really just, that to me would be a, a true tragedy if we were so divorced from the humanity of the experience that, we forgot to embed some of that into the positive side of it too, right? Because again, yeah. what are we accomplishing? We're accomplishing empowerment of users. I mean, fundamentally, that's what we're talking about here, whether in the governance form, whether in how we you know, reclaim our data, uh, whether in the financial system, this really fundamentally is about empowerment of people and communities. And you can spin that however you want politically, but the bottom line for me is that's the draw. And so people are getting hurt, particularly when they get hurt. If we don't, take even a beat to kind of acknowledge that is the tragedy it is. I find that very disturbing. Now, that being yeah. said, I want to switch gears because this is getting a little depressing because I want to make sure we don't leave without congratulating you and the Coindesk team <laughs> on the Polk Award, which is Thank outstanding. You. So it's kind of yeah. funny to me, right? Because I was thinking about this when I was in SAC. Because on the one hand, there's kind of this general like, you know, what for crypto? You know, why? Right, whatever. On the other hand, you've got this like super established group that gave this award, recognizing not only was that peak journalism at its absolute finest, if I may say, but also, you know, this story captured was about this industry, right? That's at the same time getting an interesting juxtaposition about that, like the sort of solidifying credibility and wow, crypto journalism has kind of made it to this next level. But then crypto itself is kind of we're re-questioning, you know, as a society, some of those fundamentals. So I, I, I would love to, yeah. well, a, you know, just hear from you about that announcement and what that was like. Did you see it coming? You know, but also, how, do you, how are you feeling about that kind of juxtaposition, right? Like being, yeah, yeah so recognized. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, yeah. of course, it was all me. I did the whole thing. It's all up. You know, I, I <laughs> take all the credit entirely. It's all Michael Casey. I mean, in fact, this is the thing that I feel a little guilty about, right? Like, you know, people are congratulating me. This was, you know, Ian and 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 Tracy, yeah. for the most part, it was also Nick Baker, their wonderful editor. It was Kevin Reynolds who drove the team and, and put put them in this position. It was people like Nick Day and others that have weighed in and really just helped frame the way that we cover this stuff and do it from the right perspective. I'm very, very lucky. I pulled together an incredible team of people who 
I just fully dedicated to this, as I as I said in a, a, a blog post to opinion piece, to just kind of like frame why I think this matters. We deliberately went out and hired a combination of professional journalists who've been doing this stuff. People like Kevin Reynolds, 20 years at Bloomberg, and Joanne Poe from you know many many years at CNBC, the Wall Street Journal, Fox Digital. People, you know, Emily Parker was at WSJ and New York Times and the State Department, and Mark Hockstein was at you know American Banker and you know, editor in chief over there, and then Pete Paschal from from you know from uh, uh, Mashable. So we built that higher level of professional journalists who bring something that whether we like it or not, despite all of the critique of mainstream media that Silicon <laughs> Valley likes to sort of dish out, you know, it there is this professional approach to doing these things that you just yeah. can't avoid. And yes, there yeah. is going to be a world in which a more decentralized media world, you know, it, there is real value to the citizen journalist, you know, on social media that I don't doubt that that kind of collective brings power here, but you really need this process because there's a certain amount of integrity that comes from getting a source to talk to you and building those relations. It's a very personal thing. Ian Allison is the embodiment of the guy who gets his sources to trust what he's doing because he doesn't yeah. he doesn't burn he's them excellent. and he gets the story right. And and so people go to him and tell him things. That's what journalism's all about. And you take it takes training to do that, right? So we combine that with what we think the mainstream media, which has a lot of the the former, you know, good news organizations have the former in spades, what they're lacking is crypto knowledge, which is, you know, a real understanding of how do you read on-chain data? How do you actually understand the dynamics of this conversation? So you don't get caught in this sort of misinterpretation. So we, you know, a lot of young digitally native crypto savvy reporters that we've built under the auspices of this, of this team, I think have come together in a way that I'm just incredibly proud of. But on a higher level, why does this matter? A, I'm just so thrilled it lifts crypto journalism into a higher plane. It was so wonderful to look through the list of winners on that Polk Award press release and see the New York Times and Bloomberg and you know Reuters and the Washington Post, ProPublica, and there's CoinDesk in the middle of it. And actually, I think one of the highest reference awesome. within, the, within the press release itself was the story that we broke. And then all of that was just, it's again, a moment of arrival, a kind of a milestone, as I put it, that I'm proud of. The thing that I'm really interested in here is is can we start a conversation about this role that we all need to play all journalists in addressing this industry because as my good friend Pindar Wong uh, said to me some time back and he was talking about when I took on this job as the chief content officer at Coinbase he said you have a responsibility because what you're talking about with these public blockchains is that they're a public good they're the commons they are yeah. they need to be protected yeah. from from self-interest from from those who would take charge of this and abused it. And so your role as the fourth estate is a little different from what it is in the classic construction of that, you know, the press is the fourth estate vision of government that you right. hold government to account. And those are our public representatives. So you protect the public good by holding government to account. Here you're actually protecting this public ledger. And it is something that's separate from government, but it is a very much of a public thing. I was just a really smart way to think about it. And and so as I, you know, as I now think about like what is CoinDesk's role, why is it important that we hold up hold these standards? It's precisely because this industry, if it's going to thrive and and achieve what it says it wants to achieve in terms of its decentralized principles and the value, the empowerment at the edges as opposed to the powerful in the center, it literally needs to keep doing that day in, day out. And that's I think what we have at least shown we can do in the case of the FDX case. It's bringing those self-interest, those private interests to account, holding them accountable. 
shining the light of transparency on the bad actors and sort of pointing out what's a good idea as opposed to the snake oil, right? So that I think is, hopefully we've elevated that idea, which is important here. You're reminding me, Michael, of something that I don't know that, that I've hit upon enough, right? Which is to say that the accountability in this the case of FTX specifically because of you know Ian and other and Tracy and others uh, came from within the ecosystem if you will right mm, and yep. and so that's a really it's kind of critical to note that because it's without really right I, and I don't know that I had yeah. clocked that until you just said what you said because it yeah. didn't come from the Wall Street Journal or from you know the New York Times or whatever it came from an organization and people who are similarly invested in the growth and development and positive, you know, positive aspects of this ecosystem and who yeah. felt it incumbent upon themselves to be professionals and do what their job is. Right. Is and you're, say, refer- you're, you're referring to the journalist yeah. there, but I think what's also interesting, I don't know who Ian mm. Source was and I never would ask him to, and he's certainly not going to reveal it, but yeah. my guess is it was somebody, somebody who, in the crypto yeah. industry as well, right? That's right. So, you know, this wasn't one of your anti-crypto this wasn't nuriel rabini who who discovered the balance <laughs> right, sheet, right? right yes I, I don't know maybe it was but my, my understanding for everything that neil in has suggested is that's not the case at all right so it is very yeah. much that the industry itself like the right people are doing the right things to try to expose what needs to be exposed to advance the industry as a whole right somebody else that comes to mind here who once said to me like you know that there's things that need to happen in the interest of the of the industry uh, and that's and that's Gary Gensler, who <laughs> would always ju- justify in, in the you know some of the debates and conversations I had with him at MIT. It's in crypto's interests to bring it under a regulatory umbrella. Like it's only mm-hmm. if you bring, and I think that's a sound argument. I I, I can't make in, in any bones with that idea. I think that's, and I think that the way that, that Gary looks at what he's doing here with this really remarkably ramped up attack attack might be too strong a word ramped up actions. Uh, against against the space, you know, last couple of weeks is that he thinks that this is what he's doing. He's, he's sort of regulating by enforcement, but it's nonetheless building that that umbrella, and that's going to build this thing. I know that the counterpoint that from the industry is obviously, well, no, this is ad hoc and dangerous, and there needs to be clearer guidelines, and that can come in the form of legislation or guidelines. Either way, this is what's happening, and as part of that backlash, I think it's it's being fueled by this moment in time where everybody feels like we have to do something. There's nothing there, so got to do something. There's a nail, let's whack it with his hammer. And I understand the instinct. But it's occurred to me that, like, if you look at the Paxos case, like, I literally do, I still, I'm people try to explain it to you. I do not understand how anybody buying a stable coin could could think that there is an expectation of profit, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the pillars of the Howey test upon which something is considered an unregistered security. Um, I, I don't I, I literally don't understand how that works. Like I mean, what is some argument that maybe because its value sometimes falls if its reserves aren't there that I'm I'm buying it on the bet that it's going to I, I that's just strikes me as 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 odd. But having read this fortune piece a couple of days ago about one of the major concerns that people have and I'm not casting aspersions on Binance itself here. I've got no idea whether it's accurate, but nonetheless the argument was that Binance who's in the middle of this there was concerns about Binance like forcing changes from uh, one stablecoin USDC into BUSD, and so what struck me is this is monopolistic behavior. You're using a, a platform. Mm-hmm. You're using the power of the Binance smart chain. You're using 
It sounds like Microsoft in its old days working with an operating system. This sounds like should be the concern of the FTC is where I'm going with this. This sounds like this is an antitrust concern. What is the SEC doing, <laughs> you know, dealing with monopolies and things like that? And, yet, and I also think that monopolies are the sort of thing that the crypto community could get could get behind. Like, f- that's exactly what crypto is supposed to be, is like breaking down this centralized power. So what I'm getting at is like, I, I just, I feel like we're, we're just in this moment where it's a turf war, ad hoc, whatever you can do. But in fact, there's possibly good actions that could be taken here. But it's all being framed in this weird framework of, of, of the Howie test. Yeah. So let me just be super cynical uh, to your point about shouldn't we all be behind, you know, an anti-monopolistic approach to this? Yes, because you and I are in this for different reasons than a lot of people. And money is very distortionary. I am skeptical that if someone sees an opportunity for their thing to be the winner take all thing, they're not going to jump on that. And that's just me being a cynic. Yeah. Uh, an observer of human behavior, right? And I that's think that's why that antitrust laws see, exist. Yeah, we're just going to see exactly right. We're going to see, I think, a, an increasing divide, which I think we're already starting to see. Uh, that's really going to be about motivation and the people who are in this to make money, and that is their dominant motivation, or may start to have a particular orientation to things. And the people who are truly in this for philosophical reasons are going to have perhaps a different approach to certain kinds of things. And I do think that an antitrust frame is something that might show some differentiation, but this will all play out because we're not really at that time yet. I take it's an interesting point about what is the SEC doing is a very interesting question that I think a lot of us are asking ourselves as a general matter across a variety of topics, uh, because certainly the question about authority is one that is not as well settled as I think some of us believed it was. Mm. And so there's a lot of question about the SEC's uh, bounds of its authority or the lack thereof, seemingly, uh, in the view of, of certain folks. So my hope is that we'll continue to see enough new growth and new entry into this space that the creation of monopoly will be very challenging because you'll have new entrants that are pushing and challenging and, and, and forcing, essentially, others to reckon with, you know, new ways of thinking about the technology and new new technologies themselves. Um, But at some point, we are going to see some consolidation because that's also part of the inevitable growth of any kind of new ecosystem. And we'll have to kind of see how people respond to that opportunity when that presents itself. That up and put put together and diplomatically said, as always. (laughs) Sheila, thank you. That was fun. It always is. I was really enjoying it. Yeah, Michael, I love it. These things things tend to work. All right. I hope that worked for all of you as well, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with back together again, I believe, uh, with some guests with another edition of Money Reimagined. See you then. Bye. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. The announcements by Adabi Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. 
Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest.